All right, welcome everybody. We'll continue our series. The title of the series is on the screen, Biblical Worldview 101. And we have notebooks for that. And we are on page 12 in those notebooks. Many of you have picked one up in the first several weeks. Len and Larry have some, so if you need a notebook, get their attention. We'll be on page 12 in just a bit, but uh, just to remind you of a couple of things that are coming up, uh, the servant seminars that we do every year in the March and April time frame, this year they're going to be on the 17th and the 24th of March. So those are Sundays, and they'll be from 4.30 in the afternoon on Sunday till uh, about 8 o'clock, and we offer it twice so that we can get maximum participation. If you can't make it on one date, hopefully, hopefully you can make it the other. And it's the same seminar offered twice. So pick a date on that, and we would uh, very, very much encourage you to come because we do that every year. We've been doing it for 11 years to lay out what we want to accomplish in the coming year. Uh, we have a 15-year plan that we are in the last five years of that 15-year plan. And each year we select two or three things or more that we want to accomplish in the coming year in order to fulfill as much of that 15-year plan as possible. So that's what the servant seminars are about, and it's important for our church family to know what our objectives are in the coming year. And especially so, as God has now given us this resource of the ministry center, because it will allow us to do some of the things that are on that list that required a place to carry them out. So now that we have that, there are some things on the table that uh, previously could not be. So we want to lay out some of that for our next steps moving forward and using this tool that God has given most effectively. So please mark that, March uh, 17 and March 24, 4.30 to 8 o'clock. Now, where are we going to hold that? Well, that was a uh, question for me because for 11 years... I've composed the bulletin. Every time we've had an event, I've had to think about where we're going to have it. And we've always had to rent, you know, Allen Park Community Center. We've had our servant seminars there several times, Woodhaven Community Center, Brownstown Community Center. And so I'm composing it a couple weeks ago, and I'm thinking to myself, we've got to rent someplace to, to have this. <laughs> I, and so I left the location out completely, pending finding a place. And it wasn't until I showed up last Sunday that it dawned on me, we could maybe have it here. <laughs> So it will be located here for our servant seminar. And then the other thing is the newcomer's brunch that we have periodically, and that's at our house. It's on Saturday, March 23rd. Starts at 10 a.m. and till about noon or uh, however long you want to hang out. But it's brunch, and my wife uh, makes a good brunch, so it's worth coming just for that. But also it's an opportunity for us to get to know you and you get to know us a little bit better. So if you have never been to one of our brunches, even if you've been around here for a good while, we would love to have you come. But we need to have an idea of how many folks are coming. So we ask you to give your name at the information center and they will write it down so that we have an idea of who's coming. They will also give you a printed invitation then for that that has directions to our house and our phone number and a reminder of the date and time. So any of you that haven't been, pick one of those up before you leave today so they can have your name down. And March 23rd, 10 a.m., we'd love to have you at our place. Page 12, Biblical Worldview 101. And you see up at the top, it says Section 2, Disorientation. And that's because this course has three sections to it. 
orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And if you've been with us for any of the weeks that we've been going through it, then you know what that is. I won't belabor that. Those of you that have not been able to be with us, I encourage you to listen online to some of the past lessons. All of our sermons and lessons are available at our website. But God gave an orientation to His first creatures uh, in, in creation, uh, telling them about Himself, about themselves, and what He required of them. God gave very clear instructions in orienting Adam and Eve to Himself and God's world. But the Bible teaches that Adam and Eve disobeyed. We call that the fall. And everything became distorted. Everything became disoriented. So all of this clarity that God had provided and all of the enjoyment that God had provided of Himself and of His world was now placed in in jeopardy and, in fact, uh, became adverse. The world became adverse to man and man toward his environment. Man toward man became adversaries. And God and man were now in an adversarial relationship. All of this because of the entrance of sin into God's good world. So you have orientation, creation, who God is and what He expects from us, disorientation, the fall, sin, who we are and what our problem is. And then after next week, we will conclude section two, disorientation, and move to the third section, which is reorientation, God redeeming His world, making right what has gone wrong because of the fall. Redemption is what God is doing about what has gone wrong because of the entrance of sin. So top of page 12, that's why it says disorientation. And this lesson is titled Inside Out for reasons that will be clear in that first paragraph. We've seen that the world and the devil are two parts of the trio of sin that the Bible calls the world, the flesh, and the devil. Both the world and the devil are outside of us, external to us. The world is the cosmos, that's the Greek word in your New Testament, translated world, which is the arrangement of this world system around its God-denying values. And so the key word there is values. So the world has a set of values that are distorted, and, the, and worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. And the way the sinfulness, the worldliness, the fallen values are expressed in a particular culture differs from place to place and from time to time. But in all places and at all times, worldliness, fallen values are being expressed in the way people live in that place and time, in that culture. So that's what the cosmos is. That's what the world is. And then the devil is the adversary of God and of God's purposes and of God's people. But what makes the world and the devil appealing is the flesh, the sin that is our nature and for which we are responsible. So you've got those three things taught in Scripture. You've got the world and the flesh and the devil. But the other two of them, the world and the devil, are only appealing and are only able to do their work because of the third one, the flesh the Bible calls it, which is our sin nature. And if it were not for our sin nature, then the world and the devil would not have appealed to us. They do because we are. And so really the most foundational, the most fundamental of these three then is in fact the flesh. Now, use the word flesh here because 
That's the word that the King James translation uses. The NIV translates uh, the word, Greek word sarx as sin nature in order to avoid what I've talked about in the last couple of weeks, and that is the idea that people will think that our physical material flesh is the problem. Matter, our physical bodies are not the problem. It is how we use our physical bodies. That's why Romans chapter 6, Paul says, do not yield your members as slaves to sin, but rather as slaves to righteousness. That is, the way you use your, your body and what God has given you, use in the way God intended. So it's not that our bodies are inherently evil. It's not that the flesh is inherently evil. And as I point, have pointed out, that was actually a heresy that the first century church had to combat, the idea that matter was evil. Because what it meant to a number of folks at that time was that Jesus could not have come in the what? In the body, in the flesh. How could he? How could God have come in the flesh if the flesh is inherently evil? So you had people denying that God had been incarnated, made flesh, joined God and, and humanity in, in a body. First John, the letter of First John, is written in part to combat that. And that's why in First John chapter 4, John says, if anyone denies that Christ has come in the flesh... He is an antichrist, and it was combating this very idea that God could not have taken a body because the body is evil. The Bible does not teach that, so the flesh does not refer to our physical body. It refers to our sin nature, and that's what I say in that top paragraph. The flesh is the sin that is our nature and for which we are responsible. Therefore, the most important factor in our struggle with sin is not the world nor the devil, but our sin nature. Now, I want to beat on that for a little bit. I mean, I think if you just think about it, and what I've just said there, that's true, right? That the world and the devil don't have effect unless we are the way we are. But we like to put responsibility outside of ourselves. We like to make someone or something external to us responsible for what we do. All of us like to do that. And so, blaming the world and blaming the devil are really popular. But what we've really got to deal with is the subject of this lesson, inside out. Our problem, our sin nature, that the Bible calls our, our hearts. And so, we like to put responsibility outside of ourselves. So, we will say things like, you know, I just started hanging, what will we say? I started hanging around with the wrong crowd. Now, the crowd you are with or were with may be a bad crowd. But if you're with a bad crowd, what about the bad crowd appealed to you? There's something, there's something within you that caused the bad crowd to appeal. When I was raising my, when my nephews were living with us and now with our own girls, uh, we've told them very early on, we don't blame the crowd. Because if I want to hang around with the crowd, then there's something about me to which that appeals. And by the way, how is it that it's that crowd rather than you as part of the crowd? In other words, why can't all the other people say, I'm hanging around with a bad crowd? Right? So everybody's pointing the finger. Everybody wants to point the finger outside of themselves. And we do that in lots of ways. I started hanging around with the wrong crowd. 
Now, the Bible says plenty about, especially the book of Proverbs, about choosing friends and doing that wisely. But again, we have to have hearts that are attuned to that wisdom such that we want to find those kinds of friends. It is amazing to me. I, just absolutely amazing. I've seen so many situations in which this occurs where the, the proverbial statement, not the Bible statement, but the Bible teaches this in other words, birds of a feather. I'm amazed at how people of like mind find each other and how they can do it like anywhere. They can do it in church. They can do it at a Christian high school. They can do it at a Christian college. They can do it in Christian environments. People can find each other. And how they do that, I mean, it's almost like there's a sign that says, I'm the crowd. I'm the wrong crowd. Hang out with me. And, but, but they do. And it's because there's an affinity of heart between them. So we like to blame things external to us. The devil. Again, we love to blame the devil. And TV evangelists do it regularly. You know, so they're always talking about the devil and the enemy and all of that. Now, the Bible teaches that the devil is the enemy of God and his purposes and his people, as I've said in that top paragraph. But, friends, just, just do a cursory reading of your Bible and see what kind of role the devil plays in the overall scheme. The truth of the matter is, between the power, the sovereignty of God, and the redemption that he's doing in his people, Satan is completely ineffective. In fact, the Bible teaches Colossians chapter 2 that Satan has been defeated. That Christ made, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, Christ made a public spectacle of demonic forces by his death on the cross says, triumphing over them in his cross. But to hear the televangelist types tell it, I mean, Satan is just, we're at his, we're at his mercy. And it's quite the opposite. You read your New Testament, after Satan you know, gave it his best shot against Jesus, when Jesus walked the earth, and how often do you find Satan mentioned in your New Testament? You know, do not give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, the, the most comprehensive passage in your New Testament uh, about spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6, it's all about all of the weapons that God has given us to engage in this warfare, and it's all about the victory that we have and simply fighting to realize the victory that's already there. So we like to place blame outside of ourselves on the world, the crowd, or upon the devil. I had a guy do this years ago when I was uh, working a real job in the computer field. And uh, met this guy. He had a Bible study at work once a week. He found out I was a Christian. He invited me to his Bible study. I went to the Bible study during lunch hour once a week. And as I got to know Cass, was his name, uh, you know, Cass started explaining to me the way the world works, the world according to Cass. And uh, Cass was telling me that he uh, suffers from anger and uh, that he actually has a demon of anger 
that torments him. And he starts talking about the demon of anger will show up every so often and, you know, kind of get a hold of Cass. And, you know, it's not a good scene, I guess, when the demon has gotten a hold of Cass. So he's explaining all this to me, and I say to him, I say, actually, I said this to him. I said, I know the demon's name. And he says, he looks at me, and I say, his name is Cass. <laughs> you're the guy getting angry, but you're wanting to blame some demon for taking a hold of you as a Christian, despite the fact that God says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So you see these attempts over and over and over again. And I'm just beating on it, friends, because it is important for us to reject that idea. The problem very clearly and pervasively throughout Scripture is not external to us. It is internal. It's within us. It is our struggle with the, the sin nature. So what I'm saying is we give culture and the devil much more than their due. And we sometimes say, give the devil his due. Believe me, he's, he's gotten way more than his due. And we give the world more than its due. What we really need to give proper due is the internal struggle that the Bible speaks about and that we're going to, to look at. And so we say the biblical view, back on page 12, of motivation. Secular theories of human motivation are based on a view of human nature that is either good or neutral. So secular theories of human nature don't have human nature as, as sinful. But after the fall, not inherently, but after the fall now, all people come into the world, according to the Bible, with not a neutral and certainly not a good nature, but rather a sin nature, a sinful nature. And so you, can't, you were conceived that way. Our children are conceived with a sin nature, then obviously born that way. And just as a quick aside, this is one of the reasons that a virgin conception was necessary. When God did come as flesh, He came as, as man, but, but without sin. So Hebrews 4.15 says, He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, became sin, that is, He took our sin upon Himself so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's, it's because that, in the normal procreative process, in conception, a sin nature is passed on to that human being. And so Jesus was miraculously conceived and without a sin nature. So all who come into the world, the Bible teaches, are conceived and then born with a sin nature. Therefore, they all, all these secular theories, place the locus of human evil outside the individual. The Bible, on the other hand, stresses the determinative role of our internal desires. So what does the Bible say about it? Well, you've got a boatload of stuff right there on page 12. So 1 John 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. The five chapters of 1 John have 105 verses. And in the entire 105 verses, the word idol and idolatry 
is not used until the very last verse, and that's it. Chapter 5 and verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And it seems like a really weird way to sign off if you don't understand fully what the Bible teaches about what idolatry is. Because you could look at it and say, I just read the five chapters of this letter that John wrote, and it's not about idols and idolatry, but then the last verse says, keep yourself from idols, as if he just, you know, I got nothing more to say. You know, it's kind of like preachers who say, well, I could go on, which really means they're out of material. So he appends, you know, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. But in fact, that last sign-off sentence is the subject of the entire five chapters. And central to what John is teaching is found in chapter 2, and I have it for you there. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now notice I have in bold there the things that comprise idolatry. Idolatry is not first and foremost about a piece of wood or a piece of metal that you fashion and bow down to. It, that's obviously one form of idolatry. But that's not the most general form. It's certainly not the form of idolatry that these guys were engaged in, to whom John was writing. It's not the form of idolatry that you're going to be engaged in. So we read these passages about idols and idolatry, and we go, that's not for me, that's for people who bow down to a Buddha or something like that. But idolatry is not about wood and metal. It's about love and affection. And who or what is the object of your love and affection? It's about desires and cravings. Lust, we read the word lust and we use it simply for sexual desire. But lust is just a general term for intense desire for anyone or anything. And so this is the way the Bible speaks of idolatry, and that is why, having said, do not love the world, and the cravings of sinful man, and the lust of his eyes. This is why, having said that, John can then sign off and say, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry is about what drags our hearts away from God. And we saw as we looked at uh, James chapter 4 several weeks ago, you know, in James chapter 4, verse 1, James asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, as you're asked that question, what causes fights and quarrels among you, what you would be inclined to answer, and I would be inclined to answer if I, had, if I haven't done this, would be someone or something outside of myself. What causes it? I'm, like I said this in the first hour this morning, I'm living in a world of idiots. Are you kidding? <laughs> That's what causes it. I got all these people around me who push my buttons. What causes it? It's my spouse. It's my kids. It's my boss. It's the people who are on the road who did not get the memo that, as a matter of fact, I do own the road. And you people need to get it through your thick heads. So they're in my way, and I got all this stuff, and what causes it? It's that stuff. But notice, all that stuff and all those people are external to me. 
And James says, James chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he answers the question. He says, don't they come from your desires? That war, that battle within you. So he places the problem of our external fights with other people inside of, inside of us. And so idolatry is about love and affection, being drawn away from the true and living God to someone or something else. That's why the greatest commandment, the first and greatest, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with everything that you have, you're to love God. Your affection is to be toward Him. He, he is to be valued above everyone and everything. And anyone or anything that rivals God for our love, our desire, our affection, that someone, that something has become an idol. That's what the Bible teaches. So Ezekiel 14. Speak to them and tell them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart. In his heart. So notice this phrase, idols of the heart. And most often, those are the idols that we're going to have, not some physical thing, certainly, that we would, we would bow down to. Ephesians 5, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now notice, Paul who writes that says, no immoral, impure, greedy, and then adds for greed, and what is greed? but desire for stuff, and more stuff, such a person is an idolater. Why? Because their, their desires are misplaced. Put to death, Colossians 3, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, again, which is idolatry. Ephesians 2.3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by ob nature objects of wrath. And then we have James 4, to which I had alluded, and then down at the bottom, Jesus saying, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So just ask yourself, uh, brothers and sisters, friends, What's your favorite and most used and overused and abused excuse for your regular struggle with sin? I mean, we all got one or two or ten, don't we? You know, it's, it's pointing somehow outside of myself, relieving me of responsibility. That's just the way I am. I mean, there's one for you. That's just the way I am. Well, here's the thing. God doesn't like the way you are. That's why he's involved in this big, massive change project called the Christian life and the Holy Spirit and the Word. It is not okay to just say, that's just the way I am. But it's an attempt by us to push it, responsibility, away from us. You know, this is my personality. We all have different personalities, but we all have a responsibility before God to filter our personalities through the, through the, the strain or the prism of, of His Word.
and his requirements. So what's your favorite excuse? And if you're sitting next to your spouse, your spouse knows your favorite excuse. If you can't think of it, ask him or her. They'll tell you. And, and, and you know, you may know what it is, but it would be a good idea, married couples, for you to have the humility to say, I recognize this. Or if you don't, tell me how I'm making excuses regularly for not dealing with the idols of my heart. Page 13. So this is how the Bible views our motivation. The biblical view of the motivational sequence. It doesn't start with actions or words or thoughts. In reverse order, it starts at bottom with desires, with lusts. So it starts with desires, and those desires can become idolatrous desires. They are desires, so it's not, now hear this, it's not the object that is sinful, but it's the heart that desires that object inordinately. What does that mean, inordinately? Now, many of you have heard me explain this before, so you can take a nap for five minutes, but snap out of it after five minutes. So we have ten minutes to go after that. But what do we mean by inordinate desires? Here's here's how we qualify, modify the word desires with inordinate, inordinate desires. It's because of this, that when somebody like me or when you read in the Bible cravings and desires and lust, you immediately begin to think about cravings, desires, and lust for someone or something that's bad. But the cravings and the desires and the lust may be for someone or something that's good. But it's inordinate. An inordinate desire. Now, what is that? You have the ability, and I have the ability, to make an idol out of anything. Out of anyone and anything. Because we come to desire it or them too much. Like what? If you're a a parent and you find yourself getting angry at your children and in anger disciplining them rather than in love disciplining them, in controlled love for their benefit, controlled, but instead you fly off the handle and you scream at them and berate them in an uncontrolled way or... Maybe you don't just scream at them. Maybe you hit them in an uncontrolled way. Maybe you haul off and smack them or something. Now, if you do that, something's causing that. And you say, well, here's the cause of it. My kid ignored me. I told my kid to do something, and they completely ignored me. They have have disrespected me. Tell me, preacher type, aren't children supposed to obey their parents? Doesn't the Bible say that? Aren't you supposed to honor your father and your mother? My kid is not obeying me. My kid is not honoring me. And so I smacked him in uncontrolled anger. Now, is obedience from children and honor from children toward parents, is that a good thing? Of course. But it's inordinate. It's an inordinate desire. When you're willing to sin to get it. 
when you're willing to sin in its absence, that desire for that good thing, obedience or honor, has now become idolatrous to you. You want it and demand it and crave it so bad that you'll disobey God's commands in order to get it and make it happen. And can you just think about circumstances now in your life, in anybody's life, where there's an absence in their life of some good thing. I spoke to married couples a couple of times already. Let me do it again. There may be the absence of harmony in your marriage. There may be the absence of appropriate love and affection from your spouse toward you. And you, and you now have to react to that. You now have to deal with that. Now, given all that we've said, can we make the desire for affection from our spouse and attention from our spouse and all of these good things that our spouses ought to provide, I'm not arguing that, they ought to provide, but can we make those things idolatrous? And how do you know if you have? Because your life is just ruined in the absence of that. I can't function in the absence of having whatever it is from this person. I can't obey God and be and rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice, Philippians 4.4. 4. How many people live joyless lives because they have the absence of something from somebody from somebody else. And yet God says, rejoice in the Lord always. But God, you don't understand my circumstances. I'm just willing to lay a couple bucks that he does. You know, <laughs> you're, here's what you're going to do. If you keep singing that tune, you know, you just don't understand. Nobody understands. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And you're going to wind up, you know, standing before the Lord, and you're going to be singing the words of those great theologians, the Allman Brothers. Lord, I was born a rambling man. I'm trying to make a living and doing the best I can. And when it's time for leaving, I hope you'll understand that I was born a rambling man. He goes on to say I was born in the back of a Greyhound bus and so if you just knew all my circumstances, you'd understand why I can't obey you. But let me just ask this. Who allowed you to be in those circumstances? I mean, God says, obey me in the circumstances in which I have placed you. Could Daniel, I'm going through the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights. Could Daniel and his three friends have said, I'm in Babylon. I got carted off from Jerusalem. I'm a teenager. I'm now in captivity in Babylon, and you expect me to obey you? Well, as a matter of fact, I do, says God. They might kill me. They might throw me in a fiery furnace. Matter of fact, they, they did that. They might put me in a den of lions. If I'm Paul and I'm in prison and I say to God, you know, God, I'm in these lousy circumstances, I'm just preaching your word, I'm just giving the gospel, and now I'm in jail for doing nothing other than what you told me to do, 
And while Paul is there, he writes those words, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He says that while chained to a Roman guard. And then he says, verse 13, Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So dear friend, all the excuses, all of the stuff about nobody knows what it's like for me, nobody knows what my... And, and I'm not trying to be cold-hearted with regard... We all have unique circumstances, and they are all struggles for every one of us. And we need each other and God's Word and God's Spirit to help us through that. But as we make our way through that together and holding each other up and encouraging one another, all the while we have got to lose the excuses that say, I can't obey God as long as this thing or this person is absent from my life. You know why that's so holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy idolatrous to say that. I can't obey God in the absence of. What you're saying is, God, you're not enough. And what could be more idolatrous than that? I've got to have someone or something to supplement you because you are not enough. And so God takes this very, very seriously. Our motivation starts with our desires, which then in turn is what we think about, back to page 13, pervades our thoughts, you know, you, you want to think about what your idol is? I mean, it's, most often it's what you're thinking about all the time. That you don't have, or if I had, fill in that blank, there's your idol. I could obey God, I could be content, I could do what God says, I could serve God, if only, fill in the if only, you got your idol. So you, you, you think, and then your words are affected by it how I speak, and not just how I speak to others. I mean, it certainly involves that because in the absence of this thing, now I have license to just, you know, let fly because I'm justified in this because anybody who really knew the deal and what all I've had to go through would understand why it is I fly off in these verbal tirades and, and all that. So it includes that. But you know where you do most of your talking? To you in the internal recesses of your own mind. I encourage you to read Psalm 42. Because there the psalmist is talking to himself. And he says to himself, Why is my soul downcast? And then the solution, as you read through Psalm 42, to this these, this false thinking that leads to being downcast and depressed is that I will remember the Lord and I will meditate upon His truths. Most of your talking is done to you. And then plenty of it done toward others as well. And that in turn gives rise to actions. Now, that's the order of the biblical motivational sequence. Desires, thoughts, words, actions. This is why when we get to the section on reorientation and redemption, in order to make this right, 
what do you need? <laughs> I mean, if it's, if it's just actions then what you, in, in your anger, then what you need is anger what? What do we call it? Anger management. Yikes. Man, Christian people talk about managing their anger. You don't, you don't need anger management. You need anger surgery. You've got to have the cancer of anger excised, cut from your heart. But what we want to do is focus on the actions. We want to focus on it in reverse order. So I want to teach you methods to keep you from flying off the handle. You know, go outside, get some fresh air, count to ten, and, and all that's fine. If it keeps you from killing someone, I'm happy about that. But it's not getting to the root of the issue, is it? I was, uh, I was teaching brothers in China uh, a couple of years ago. It was uh, how to counsel people. And I was going through this stuff. You know, people are motivated by what they do, by the desires within them. And I'm showing that from Scripture. And I'm saying, so if you want to counsel people, you really want to get to that. And this one Chinese brother says through the translator that he was a teacher in a, in a high school in China. And he says, you know, we had these methods. I mean, you, you, Brown, should be giving us these methods like we were taught as teachers to get kids to do their tests and to concentrate on their tests. So we set up a bell system. You know, a bell, I don't know, do we have that here? I don't know. They didn't have it when I was a kid. <laughs> Clearly nothing worked for me if you look at my, my grades. But we got this bell system, and the bell goes off at a certain time, and that focuses the kids' attention, and they've just set up all this external apparatus to focus the kids to take these tests. And my answer to him, he goes, so you, you should be giving us methods like that to tell God's people how to handle the stuff that they go through. Well, number one, the idol of anger is rising up in my heart. As I go, the demon of anger has risen up in Ken's heart. As I go halfway across the world to teach you about counseling, and now you're telling me about the bell system at your, at your school? But this is what I said. I said, suppose those kids have to take a test in a school that doesn't have your bell system. Well, now what? I mean, your bell system only works as long as you got the bells, right? But, you know, you're not going to have that kid forever. And to have that kid learn to focus his or her attention, we're going to have to get at some more root issues that they can take with them. Because a change of address is not a change of heart. And see, that's what we do. We want to focus on the actions. So I'm in this environment, and it's the environment that's causing it, so let me change addresses. Let me get out of this environment. But you're taking the same heart with you. That's the problem. If we don't get to the heart of the issue within each of us, then we have not solved the issue. That's why people do it with their marriages. If the problem is my spouse, get a new spouse. But the problem is the heart that I bring to the relationship and how I'm reacting to the situation that God has allowed me to be in. So what do I need? Heart surgery. Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So what can, what can give this surgery? It is the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. 
which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it, the Word of God, judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So in our next lesson, we are going to, in our next few lessons, when we get to the third section on reorientation, we're going to see how God is doing that, both in us and then using us to see that done in others. Let's ask him to go with us until next Lord's Day. Father, thank you for this time to consider the power of the heart, of our desires, of our cravings, of our lusts, of our affections, of our loves that motivate us. Lord, I thank you for this time to consider the many ways in which we seek to deny that. Because it's painful for me to look into the mirror of the Word of God and see myself there as I really am. It is indeed painful for me to to feel the the scalpel of the knife of the Word of God applied to my heart. But Lord, help me to remember that it is for your good purpose and that you want me to see myself as I truly am so that I continually, daily, momentarily, every day, see my need for the Lord Jesus so that I am regularly in the race of repentance as you show these things to me and reveal these things to me about my thoughts and attitudes of the heart from your word. I pray that there are those in this room desire to see our hearts exposed so that they can be healed. They will not be healed until exposed. Help us, Lord, then, to, to go through your radical surgery because we know the outcome is for us to become like Jesus. Go with us this week, and we ask you to grant us safety. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.